This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. In Conversation is sponsored by the Seaborne, Broughton and Walford Foundation, a charity that has been successfully supporting the performing arts in Australia since 1986. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Today I'm joined by an actor who is a familiar face for Australian theatre-goers and television viewers. From a single guest role as an unnamed nurse in an episode of Sons and Daughters, Kate Raison was a regular on dramas such as A Country Practice, Home and Away and E Street. Her theatre work has seen her perform in plays as disparate as Dark Voyager, Mary Stewart and The Torch Song Trilogy. And more recently, she was fated for her roles in Two and Killing Katie, Confessions of a Book Club. She's currently rehearsing for the latest play from the living legend that is David Williamson for the Ensemble Theatre, and I'm delighted that Kate has snuck in before rehearsals to be in conversation with me today. Kate Raison, welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thank you, Simon. Good morning. Now, a new David Williamson play in 2024, it's not a phrase many of us would have dared to utter. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about it. Yes, well, there was some rumour going around that he'd actually retired, but I don't think he's ever going to retire. (laughs) And lucky for us that he hasn't. The play is called The Great Divide and it's a, a very typical David Williamson piece in the sense that we get two sides of a story from very different varying opinions and it's about what's sort of happening in the world at the moment and has happened a lot in Australia where very small, lovely little country towns are being taken over and a lot of development is happening but the people that live in those towns and have lived in those towns for many years are in lots of ways being pushed out. It's also a story about what's happening with uh, property and property markets around the world, how we're not enabling people to actually live in these communities as opposed to exist in them. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm. The production includes some, dare I say, ensemble regular faces? Yes, yes, of course it does. And it actually includes one of my... uh, Uh, Very dear friends, Georgie Parker and myself, um, are back together playing again. We have been in a play before at the Ensemble, but we also worked for a long time on a country practice together and we've known each other for a very long time. So, yes, and uh, John Wood is also back. I think he was very much known to ensemble audiences. We have a few people who may not be as well known. Caitlin Burley is in the show, Emma Diaz, we're very lucky to have, and James Lugden as well, who is very well known to ensemble audiences. Mm. Now, I don't know whether you can call yourself an actor if you haven't already done a David Williamson play, and I assume you have done (laughs) one. (laughs) Yeah, I've done a few. What's interesting about this one for me is that it's a very different take on the character. Generally, I play the very conservative side of David's characters, (laughs) except for once when I did a play called After the Ball, which was a wonderful piece, and it was based really on David's mother and it was one of those plays that I think he wrote after she had passed away, not previously. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful piece Um, and she was a fabulous character. But apart from that, yeah, I I usually play the very conservative roles. Sort of the pushback role. (laughs) That's right. But this one is is a little different. It's got a twist. So are you one of the people uh, moving into the country town or trying to keep the Oh, well, I actually play Georgie Parker's P.A., 
Oh. I play a character called Grace and she has a very interesting journey through the play. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the thing about David's work is that we, we all see people we know in his work. Uh, that's in right. In all the different roles. And I think that's we always so see both sides, both yeah. <laughs> sides of the coin, so to speak. Does the script arrive kind of fully formed? Is it one of those things where they're kind of, I don't know what they do in television, blue pages or something appear? Yeah, the <laughs> amendments the appear. Amendments. Yeah. <laughs> blue, green, yellow, you go through all of them. Yeah, no, um, quite often, and we've done it with this play, we do a little workshop or a read-through prior to starting rehearsals. David is usually quite active and quite willing to, you know, discuss the piece. But, yeah, his words are usually pretty good. Mm, I'm so, sure. Yeah. Uh, our first piece of music now, Kate, uh, and you've got the wonderful Nora Jones to kick us off. Why yeah. have you chosen this one? It's a very special song for me. It was, I suppose it was a time in my life where there was a lot of things going on and there was things happening in my life that were quite... I suppose in a way tragic. But this was something that used to always get me through and my mother was very ill and it was that time of your life where you have to step up and be very adult. Mm, you grew up real fast. Yeah, and so this was a particular song that meant a lot to me at the time and I love, I love Nora Jones. I love the music that she has come from. I love that sense of it's a folk, it's a jazz, it's it's all mixed up together. And I've always been a very big fan of Ravi Shankar as well. And so, yeah, the pedigree was there for me. Come away with me in the night Come away with me and I will write you Come away with me on a bus Come away where they can't tempt us with their lies And I want to walk with you on a cloudy day where the yellow grass grows knee high So won't you try to come Come away with me And we'll kiss on a mountain top Come away with me And I'll never stop loving you That wonderful voice of Nora Jones for Come Away With Me, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Kate Raison. So, Kate, where did acting begin for you? It began really in Palo Alto in California. Ooh. That was where I, I sort of first got my taste, I suppose. I was travelling there with my family. I was about 16. I was going to Palo Alto High and drama was offered as a subject, so... Because I'm very old, back back <laughs> at school in Australia, there was no such thing as drama as a subject at the time I was going through school. So this was all new to me and I just found it fascinating that you could do choir as a subject and drama as a subject and I just went, But there were wow. extracurricular activities like that at your Australian school well, or yeah, even not then? Really. Not really. Not really. Okay. There wasn't really. Not where I went to school. And I've heard that other 
you know, other kids had that opportunity, but it just wasn't that sort of school. So I hadn't really been exposed very much, except the fact that I truly loved going to the movies. I loved going to the theatre. And, you know, my mum was very active in doing that with me when I was a kid. But to really actually get up there and do it, mm. yeah, that was the first place So how I old are you there? I was 16. Mm. So that's quite an old start. Often uh, young actors are starting when they're eight years old or something. That's right. No, <laughs> I was not never a child actor. I was going to be all sorts of things before I was going to be an actor. What sort of things were you going to be? I had an operation on my eye when I was very young, so I decided I was going to be an ophthalmologist. <laughs> oh, well, that's <laughs> because... That's dedicated. I, yeah, that, dedicated. <laughs> I was going to be a writer because I like to read books. You know, I yeah. was one of those kids. <laughs> Just <laughs> anything I loved, I thought I might be that. But you weren't putting on shows in your backyard in your living room? No. No. Not even, really. even though you were enjoying theatre and film and so on like that? That's right. I was enjoying going and seeing it and I, I remember my mother took me when I was very young to see Sweet Charity mm-hmm. and I did. I remember watching Sweet Charity and thinking I want to be Shirley MacLaine. It's not that I wanted to be an actor. I just wanted to be Shirley MacLaine. Yes. So, yeah. That's as good an uh, ambition as I think as I any, had a I very vivid imagination. <laughs> I could be anything I wanted to be. <laughs> so tell me about that uh, drama class then in Palo Alto. That obviously planted the seed of I'm, I want to do this for mm. the rest of my life. Yeah, I, I think it did. I remember I did a production of a play called School for Wives, which was Moliere, and I was just enthralled by the whole rehearsal process and costuming and just everything about it just really was so tantalising to me. And after that, I came back to Australia to finish my schooling. And I was sort of desperate to do the same thing. But of course, it just wasn't necessarily on offer. So when I finished school a year or two later, that's when I went straight to the ensemble. So I went to train at the ensemble uh, with Hayes Gordon. And I went there literally straight after school. Was that a formal course or was it more like an apprenticeship? No, it was a course. It was a three-year acting course, yeah, that used to operate out of the theatre. Well, it was actually out of the studios. It was called Ensemble Studios. It was Mm. separate to the theatre. But every week we would do one class at the theatre on a Saturday morning. We would do a we would do a theory class for three or four hours and everybody would join together in the group and then we'd all go off and do our separate things during the week. Mm. Was there something in particular that you felt you learnt about the craft in that process? Absolutely. I learnt everything about the craft and I learnt so much about things that I had no idea. So what, um, what did you not have any idea of? I guess I always thought that it was just a natural process. <laughs> you just stand up and say the line. You just stand up and make it work. And um, I think a lot of actors You're do that. You're ruining it for us all. I know, but I think a lot of actors do that and yeah. a lot of actors are very clever and they can do that. But I think most actors have a certain toolkit under their belt. They have an ability to be able to draw on something else because you can't make it work eight shows a week. Mm. It can't always be there. So there needs to be, for me, there needs to be techniques that you can use to make that happen every single show mm. because every audience member has paid the same amount of money. Exactly. And so what you want to see is the same performance that you saw last night. Mm. I suppose it's the art of, um, I mean, to an audience member you want to feel like the actors are just almost making it up as they go that's in right. a good way. That's right. And uh, it takes a lot of preparation to yeah. look like you're making it up. That's you right. Go. That's exactly what it means. It needs to be first night every night. Yeah. So how do you keep that freshness so that after week six, eight, whatever? It depends on what you're doing. 
but there's a level of energy that needs to be there all the time. There's a warm-up process that goes along with that to put you into that mindset and that headspace. Every actor has a different process mm. before they, you know, some actors can have a cup of coffee and walk onto a stage and just make it just work. Just do it. Yeah. Mm. Um, what do you do? Some I do a, a vocal warm-up. I do a, a stretching warm-up. I limber up everything that needs to be working in that process. Mm. And then the rest of it for me is knowing what I'm doing, knowing what's coming next, and then trying to stay in that moment, not removing myself from that moment. And that takes just concentration, basically. I think it was Meryl Streep who said that, you know, acting is 95% concentration. If you can keep that concentration going and not go off, not drift off, mm-hmm. not start doing the shopping list or <laughs> <laughs> thinking about what that person, where that person bought their shoes in the front row. Um, and it's very difficult. That, that person's looking at their phone. <laughs> oh, yeah. That person's answering their phone. <laughs> yes, more of that later perhaps. But our next piece of music first, Kate, and we've gone from one glorious female voice to another one, an iconic one in the form of Joni Mitchell. Why have you chosen this piece? Oh, because I just love Joni. She's just meant so much to me over the years and I feel as though she's been a huge support, as I know she has been, to a lot of people. But there is something so special about listening to her voice. It's so unique. There's nothing quite like it. And the song Chelsea Morning is something that I've always just, my love of America, of of New York, of all of those things deep in my heart is just so special. And I love this song. Woke up, it was a Chelsea morning And the first thing that I heard Was a song outside my window And the traffic wrote the words It came a-ringing up like Christmas bells And wrapping up like pipes and drums Oh, won't you stay, we'll put on the day And we'll wear it till the night It was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I saw Was the sun through yellow curtains and a rainbow on my wall Blue, red, green and gold to welcome you Crimson crystal beads to beckon Oh, won't you stay, we'll put on a day There's a sun show every second of today and the streets are paved with passers-by and pigeons fly and papers lie waiting to blow away Chelsea Morning from the iconic Joni Mitchell, the choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Kate Raison. Kate, were you listening to that back in the day? Was this a, was that the soundtrack to your, your time in Palo Alto, maybe? Um, it was a, a little bit, but I really uh, got into Joni in my early 20s. It wasn't something that I necessarily grew up with, yeah. I suppose. So, yeah, I discovered her a bit later. So, um, yeah, when I was growing up in Palo Alto, it turned out that uh, Joan Baez actually went to the same school that I went to. She went to Palo Alto High. There was this wonderful weekend at um, Stanford campus. They have a beautiful amphitheatre there. And my parents had found out that, you know, Joan Baez was playing and I was thrilled. I I really wanted to go. So off we went with our picnic 
And Joan Baez was, you know, singing on the stage and having a nice time and then she invited up a guest and the guest was Bob Dylan. Oh. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, pretty extraordinary. And she used to come back every year and uh, do a little performance on the steps of the town hall and they would use the magical choir that was at my school and they'd all go and sing with her. So it was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. I mentioned at the top of the show, the first TV role at least was uh, as a, just a sort of effectively a talking extra, I think, on Sons and Daughters. Tell me about that first day where you're walking into a TV studio for the first time as a professional actor. Terrified. Absolutely terrified. When I first thought about this, I thought, I can't even remember doing that, but of course I can remember. Um, and it was, all comes flooding back. Oh, it does come flooding back. And it, <laughs> you and it blocked it. And it wasn't necessarily the most pleasant experience in the world. Um, but it was, it was just frightening. I'd done a lot of theatre. I'd done virtually no television, except mm. maybe a commercial here and there. But, but which it, operates very differently, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, when you walk into a show that's been running as long as something like Sons and Daughters with all those regular cast members, there's this click mm. that you're just not a part of. I remember noting it from myself that if I was ever in that position, I would make sure that whoever walked into that space felt very much more welcome than perhaps I did at the <laughs> and you, time. And you were in that position several times over. That's right. And it was one thing I think that, especially with the country practice, and I know everybody says this who've, who's worked on the show, so it must be true, and that is that the guest artists on that show were very, very important to the show, no matter who they were, no matter how many lines they had or what they were doing. They were important and... It sort of trickled down from the top, I think, how important that was. And the storylines were important. So it was one of the most, I think, welcoming shows in probably, you know, ever because it was it was truly a family. There was always a level that it was working towards wanting to be the best it could be but also engaging with everybody on a very similar level. You'd done that three years at uh, the Ensemble Studios, which I assume is more of a theatre acting course. Absolutely. So was there anything you had to kind of unlearn and relearn in a television environment? Not really. And obviously there's certain things that you learn a lot more about with working with cameras, Mm. um, which I had really no idea about. Shane Porteous, God bless him, was very helpful to me when I was a baby actor on a country practice because he knew everything there was to know about it and he was very willing to help you if you asked for it. But no, it's still the same technique. And that technique really worked for me in television as well as it would in theatre. Yeah. I suppose the difference is chopping and changing. You're not doing... You're You're not not doing it in order. You're not doing it in order. Mm. So, you know, I had my own way of dealing with that. And when I think about the amount of screen time that we shot, it was quite extraordinary. Yeah, because a lot of those you were doing two-hour episodes, I mean, with the, plus including commercials and yeah, stuff. Yeah, but nevertheless, like that's... 46 <coughs> minutes 46 minutes episode, of, of new material, then... uh, so that's 90 or so per week, every week. Yeah. And it's on for like 48 weeks a year or something or 50, something like that. Absolutely. It was, it was, I think it was. I think it was like 42 or 48 weeks a year. It's yeah. crazy amount. Yep. But, but, I mean, how does that sort of um, schedule work? Because I, mean, I imagine are you doing kind of, you know, a, a scene from this week's episode and because it's on the same set you're now doing a, a scene from like four weeks later and so on? Not so much that. What they used to do with uh, a country practice, and I think they do it a lot. I've just worked recently on um, another show that does the same thing. You shoot all that sort of exterior in one week 
And then the next following week, you go back to that script. So you're doing that script mm. in studio and the following script you're doing on location. Right. So you're always doing two at, two at the same time over a two-week period. I see. So you're not too far. You're not like weeks and weeks out. You're just a week no, out. No, you're usually just a week out, depending on how... I mean, there's very, I don't think yeah. there's very few shows, probably Home and Away and Neighbours Now It's Back, still shoot in a similar way to keep it running because they've got to put so many episodes to air a week. Yeah. Um, but there's very few shows that work that way now. So you They're must, usually shorter seasons. Yeah. So at some point in that process, you must have been thrown uh, and been thinking this scene that you're about to do is... Yep. Is like, you know, after so-and-so has died rather than before so-and-so has died. That's right. You've got to check. And then the, yeah. so, does, so does the wardrobe department. Continuity. <laughs> what were you wearing? How was your hair looking? Absolutely. Everybody's on the line to make sure that it's, um, yeah. So what's your favourite memories of that era of, of working in television? Because it, it, it does work differently now. It, it does. And it's, look, mainly the camaraderie of the cast and the crew, a lot of the crew, that we worked with, that I worked with at Channel 7 are still there, mm. um, still doing that job. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work, but it was a lot of fun. It was very, I think probably now I notice a lot more fun perhaps then. That's what a lot of people than, say actually. Yeah, because mm. there wasn't as much restriction around certain areas and I guess that made it more relaxed in lots of ways. Not that I think some of the restrictions that have come in are very important and we need to have them. Mm. And But there is a sense sometimes that even when it comes to health and safety, I mean, you know, gosh, we used to do some things that now if you did them now, people would just go, you've no way. Yes. <laughs> sitting on top of a, you know, sitting on top of a four-wheel drive going down a country road pretending that you're riding a horse Oh, that's and the only it. way you're strapped in really is being held at the back by the grip, <laughs> by by on your by your belt basically. Belt. <laughs> yes, and it'll that be was fine. the best it'll way. It'll be fine. It'll be fine, and that's the best way to get the shot. It was fine. It was fine. It was okay. But you know, I mean, that's the sort of thing that you just never, you'd never yeah, have. They don't do that. You never have that sort of fun now. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I don't know whether I'm cool enough for your next choice of music, Kate. It's a Take Five from the Dave Brubeck Quartet. Yeah. Why is this a favourite? This is the music I grew up on. Ah. It's my parents were great uh, lovers of jazz. Um, my dad loved classical as well, but, you know, my mum was a huge lover of this sort of music and especially Brubeck, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, all of that. And so I think it gave me a taste for... It started me off on my jazz journey and I continued because uh, once I sort of got a taste for it, I spent a lot of my, I suppose I went to the basement in Sydney when I was about 15. That was the first time I went there to see Galapagos Duck. Wow. And, and, and I just kept going back. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of my musical youth listening to jazz. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
the wonderful Take 5 from the Dave Brubeck Quartet. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Kate Raison. And Kate, I have to say that when I, I was uh, accessing that track under genre, it wasn't just under jazz, it was under cool jazz. I didn't realise that was actually a subgenre. <laughs> I know. I, I saw that too. When I thought, and I thought, I thought, cool jazz. I think... I think it was the beginning, maybe 1956, it was cool jazz. <laughs> it was. I think it still is. <laughs> yeah. Was it a coincidence? I mean, looking at your resume, there's a lot of television in those early years, especially and a lot of those big dramas, Country Practice, Home and Away Street and so forth, where you are a regular and you're doing it for mm. a couple of years or whatever each. Was that deliberate or was that just the opportunities that presented themselves? Well, it started out basically as the opportunity that presented itself. And certainly with, when I first went and uh, auditioned for a country practice. I actually auditioned for a country practice and I, I did a guest role. And I think from there that's when there was a sense that quite often when you did that on that show, if it went well, you could possibly end up coming back as something either the same or mm. something new. And that's what happened with the country practice. And then I came back as the ranger, the Cathy um, role that I did for all those years. And then after that I think it does actually help the momentum did pick up for me mm. and then I was offered other, you know, but I, I certainly after a country practice went and auditioned for certain things and didn't get roles. Well, of course, yeah. So, but, you know, but then there were other things on offer. So, yeah, I didn't think to myself I want to do 10 years of television, <laughs> I want to do six <laughs> years of television. Those opportunities were there and you took them and they were great characters. Mm. I got to play some fantastic characters and characters that I would never have been offered normally, I suppose. I guess for me, I was always happier working than saying no to something because I thought it wasn't quite right for me. I just wasn't in that headspace. And I know lots of actors who do that. Mm. And It's not for... on my brand. Yes, Did you ever... <laughs> that's right. But I just never had that opinion. I just thought if it's there, I'm going to jump and take it. Yeah. So was there a conscious decision to try and move back to theatre or, or, again, it was just the opportunities? That... No, I did I did theatre all the way through doing television. That must have been difficult. With yeah, that I could never or... do it now. I'd just die. die. Mm. But, you know, when you're 27 or even 30, I did it, you know, mm. it was much easier. So you'd be, you'd be shooting I'd be shooting or whatever and then the I would... And then you'd do a performance yep. in the evening. Yeah. Goodness. Crazy. They didn't give you any leave of absence from I got, the show? I used to get a leave of absence for rehearsals. And basically what I used to do was I would, you, you know, I'd have the role on offer and I'd think about the role and if I really wanted to do the theatre role, even if I thought, you know, if it was going to be a huge stretch for me, and most of them were, mm. I would say absolutely yes to the role and then I would go and ask for four weeks off and the producers would usually say no problem, we can do that, okay. but we need you back at this time. So I would open the show and then usually the next morning I would be back on set So at the, the four weeks off is for the rehearsals, not for the That's right, not for the, not for the run. So I learnt to nap anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I could sleep under a tree in a field oh, when God, I was I I doing do that. that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, tell me about then moving from when you're in a rehearsal phase of a play to a performance phase of a play. Is there a phase that you prefer? I love rehearsals. I'm the sort of actor that just loves rehearsals. I like to dig around in the script and sit around the table and chat for days and days on end and then find out where everything is coming from and how it all forms together and then to be up in the room playing all day with it making all those wonderful mistakes that you make during rehearsals and pulling things apart. 
I love that. See, I'm even wringing my You're hands, wringing your as, hands I speak. as you say that. What's <laughs> been some a, of your favourite roles to do that to? Well, Mary Stewart was definitely one of those roles. Even though it was terrifying, I found it quite an extraordinary rehearsal process. And to think that a lot of people, when they do that play, they, you know, they rehearse it for six or seven weeks. Some Eastern European countries would rehearse a role like that for 12 weeks, Gosh. you know, because we do it in four. So, <laughs> yeah. Budgets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did a, a role years ago in a play that was about the IRA and the Irish-English situation in Belfast at the time, um, and it's called Never in My Lifetime, and it was a beautiful play and my character was quite extraordinary in, in the fact that she was very much the catalyst of the show that was trying to make the decision about what was right and wrong. Just the research that went into that at the time was really quite in-depth in lots of ways and it was h- much harder back then to get information. Now you've got the internet. Yeah. We had to find old clips of people talking about you know, what had happened and trying to find dialects and, you know, it was it was just, I found it just completely fascinating and you learn so much about what you're about to embark on and you, you're really trying to find out how you can walk in those shoes mm. because you have no, you have nothing to relate that to. And you don't have uh, a sort of a, an advisor sitting there saying who's lived it or something no. to say, well, this is the way you should do it. No. What about accents? Do you enjoy doing accents? When you have I to- love doing them. Mm. I can sometimes find them very difficult and I have a need, a very strong need, to get them right. Well, I should hope so. (laughs) But (laughs) dialects are really important to me, so if I'm going to do one, it has to be. Is a dialect coach always provided? Now, pretty much now, yes, but not for sometimes as long as you (laughs) you might like like. them. (laughs) So uh, so what's the most challenging one you've, you've found, the one that took longest to get your tongue around? I think the Northern Irish accent I found very difficult. I did an Irish play. I found that quite tricky. I'm pretty good with a lot of American dialects, mm. but I recently did more of a sort of southern drawl accent in a play called Heroes of the Fourth Turning that I did a couple of years ago, and I found that tricky to get it absolutely right and the dialect coach was absolutely fantastic. You know, she really helped me through it. Do you find the need to keep the accent when you come off stage? No. So you can just snap it on, snap it off? People people tend to think that you can do party, you know. As a party trick, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bit of a party trick. <laughs> but with me it's usually refined to the words. Ah, those exact words. Yeah. But also so much to do with accents and making them sound genuine is that choice of words because a different dialect will use a certain turn, of, a different turn of phrase to the way we might Absolutely. Use it. And just it just wouldn't something. be the same. No. It wouldn't be the same. So, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Our next choice of music, Kate, is Vince Jones. <laughs> <laughs> now, what did that, I love what Vince. What did that noise mean? Oh, I love him. <laughs> I've loved him for such a long time. I particularly love this song. I remember listening to it in probably, I don't know, 1987. And I had the album that this song was on and I used to play it a lot on the record player. And it spoke to me in so many different ways that I then realised, of course, what it was actually about, what this song is actually about. And, of course, you know, being totally ahead of his time, it, it's about climate change and looking after the world. and But it can be about so much more. 
And, yeah, it's always spoken to me. I used to quite often see Vince Jones and the band playing at the basement and I saw him recently uh, doing a, a gig at the recital hall and it was just fantastic. So, yeah, love this song. Stuff for Sunday, although it's Monday. Sing about Friday, even though it's Thursday. Constantly waiting for the change. I live in confusion. Just laugh, I do what they say. Don't corner my heart, my world, my everything. It seems like you can almost anything. Forget all the Persistent resistance will do, will win in every way. Don't jettison everything, right side or the left. You worry me to death. Don't jettison everything. Jettison from Vince Jones. The choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Kate Raison. She's appearing in David Williamson's new play, The Great Divide, which is on at the Ensemble Theatre from the 8th of March to the 27th of April. Visit ensemble.com.au for more information and for bookings. Kate, it's often been observed that good roles for women in particular are lacking, especially as a performer starts to move through life. Has that been your experience? Yes. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that especially women... It's just like a cut-off point we have. We certainly have it on television. It's quite frightening, actually, now when you watch some of the shows. And I admire those women over 50 that have got a job. <laughs> Hang on to it. I suppose it's the same in, in our culture a little bit as well. It sort of speaks to the same thing. Perhaps, uh, I don't know, I think it's the same in America, although I think that's why a lot of women in the States now that you see on screen anyway don't look their age in any way, shape or form. Mm. And if you do have the, the lines of life, I think it can really um, damage careers in lots of ways because we tend to become a little invisible. And it's certainly something that you notice as a woman getting older. Um, did you, you notice it. Did you feel, was there a period where there was a bit of a drought where you thought, yeah. oh, my God? Absolutely, absolutely. And it hits earlier than you think. I mean, really it's more like... 45 to 55, mm. that's when it's sort of... But then I think maybe if you can hang on mm. <laughs> <laughs> long enough, you come out the other side because then if you can actually 
maintain that ability to do the job, yeah. then, yeah. And do the roles almost start to come back? I think, well, fingers crossed they do. Mm. And I think also that we we don't tend to play our age very often in theatre. Mm. We don't even really play our age much in television and film. No. If you think about it, nobody's really playing their age anymore. Mm. I mean, you get all these instances where someone's playing someone's father or something and they're actually only eight years older than them. That's right. That's right. (laughs) And that happens all the time. It happens a lot on stage, of course, because it has to. It's a bit easier on stage, though. Yeah, but on stage you can... There's also things that, you know... It's, it, it, it is a lot easier. But, yeah, mm. it is. I find it fascinating. Do you find more roles have been coming through? I'm thinking of, like, Killing Katie, for instance, The Confessions of a Book Club. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, it was a new play, was it? Yes, mm. yeah. It was a brand-new piece by um, Tracy Trinder. Unfortunately, I think for that, what was great about that was that, yes, there was all those women on stage and that's, that's really telling but at the same time it's a story about a book club so I guess, you know, it was more women go to book clubs. Right, yes. But Not... still those characters, mm. those characters are f- formed and based on a lot more truth than perhaps a lot of characters that you might see in, say, television or film. Mm. You can do it on stage. It's much easier, I think. An next track... Kate, and it's Fleetwood Mac, which is a, a different one for me, I have to say. Tell me about why you've chosen this one. When I was growing up in the States, when I was growing up in America, um, the, I think this album came out, 76 or something. It was the Rumours album. And this particular song really got me through a lot of difficult times in my life. I used to sit there with a cassette player <laughs> yes, and just my ear to the thing. I was homesick. I was very homesick. And I really wanted to be somewhere else. And I think Christine McVie, who wrote this particular song, who sings this song in the band, it was a beautiful song. Songbird from Fleetwood Mac, the choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Kate Raison. Uh, Kate, you're married to a fellow actor, Brian Megan. 
and have been for quite some time. Am I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe. And you've often worked together, often worked together oh, actually on stage. You must have a secret source because uh, showbiz marriages often don't last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's certainly lasted. And the fact that it lasted through us doing a, a play together when our daughter was... I think we started rehearsals prior to her arriving in the world. We finished rehearsals six weeks after she had arrived in the world. Then we went on stage when she was about nine weeks old and we survived. So That's bouncing back pretty fast from uh, giving birth. It was birth. a really <laughs> stupid idea and I don't know who talked me into it. I think it was actually Sandra Bates who was the artistic director of the ensemble at the time thought it would be a great idea. No, no you can do it. Yeah, Not yeah. a problem. Do a two-hander. Have a baby. <laughs> Well, that sort of segues into that next question because <laughs> raising a family at the same time as both of you being actors, you know, who tend to work nights, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, I rehearsals now during the day, but then mm. the, the whole day flips over, I guess, That's right. when you hit uh, performance times. How did you manage? Well, um, how do you manage? Well, we well we just we just sort of managed. When Hannah was very young, we had a nanny, and the nanny used to come to the theatre, and so I would do a quick feed. And then off to the show and the particular show that we were doing at that point, there was no break for either of us. It was a two-act, two-hander. So that, was, that was two, wasn't it? No, no, that was, that was, that was uh, called Wrong for Each Other. Oh, God, you came back for um, more after that. Yeah, and then we came back for more. <laughs> well, we also did um, Chapter 2, yeah. with Simon, which we did with Georgie Parker and Jamie Oxenbolt and the two of us. That was always, it's always tricky because when the kids get, when they're young, you can just take them with you and they can hang around. That's when they're very little. Yeah, yeah, very little. But when they get a bit older and they have to go to school the next day, then basically you have to leave them at home. And that can be a bit stressful when both parents are leaving every night. Mm. And that's, that's, that, I found that hard. Found, in fact, to the point where by the time we were doing two, it was okay. They were old enough to deal with life, you know, on their own. And then we went and toured that so for you know three months then we just had to look after the fur baby at home because the the <laughs> others had the others had flown the coop so to speak but have, yeah have they gotten into the performing arts as well yeah my my daughter certainly has yes she's a filmmaker did three years at the film school um and now she basically has her own production company and is you know working towards getting more things up at the moment Yeah, she's quite prolific, actually. She's doing really well. But on the other side of the camera as well as acting, so, yeah. Right, okay. But what about when you are, you know, married to the person who you are in a show with and, you know, you've done the rehearsals or you've done a performance or whatever and you go home and you're still with that person and do you you just completely separate the show from home life? I don't think you can actually completely separate the show. But, no, you don't have to dissect every little moment that happened out on stage. If there's a problem or if there's something not working, I think we work together particularly well Mm. that way. We have a really good relationship in the sense that we can actually say what we think to each other as actors without Mm. feeling threatened. Mm. And it might be very different for directors who have worked with us because (laughs) it is tricky. Mark Kilmurray may have a completely separate opinion and might go, never again. Um, (laughs) Because he's also he's also a very good friend, so yes. you know sometimes we would behave quite badly. Well, when I next have him in, I'll have to ask him about the challenges of uh, directing a married couple. That's right, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure. <laughs> Um, going back to that story of, you know, whether it was a country practice, I think it was where, you know, you're riding the horse by being on top of the four-wheel drive. Yes. Um, aside from that sort of stuff, something that's, you know, changed in the way things are done, um, 
Is there anything about, you know, the younger generation coming through, the, the new generation of actors that you sort of look at and you go, God, you're missing out on this stuff that, that I got to do, the, the way we used to do things? I'm sure it's just different. I think it's just different. They have a very different approach. It's interesting because we're discussing a lot of this in um, in the play because, you know, we have a 17-year-old in the play and looking into that generation, I suppose, mm. everything's different. Mm. It's a totally different world. I mean, you used to go on a set and there was no phones. Mm. It was, you know, we were lucky... I remember when A Country Practice, when we were out working with them and J&P, the production company, got a mobile phone that was a big box yeah. and it used to sit on the set and it was only for emergency use yeah. because every phone call cost... A small fortune. A small fortune. <laughs> so things... things that's, that's next year's season. That's <laughs> right. Things were completely different. I'm also thinking about, you said before, about doing the research for that Irish play, about mm. being able to just, you can now, you can just look it up on the internet, whereas before you had to find things out. Is that journey of discovery and process missing? I don't think it's missing. No, not at all. I just think it's very different. It's just different. And in lots of ways, it's probably easier and better, you know, and now I use it. Mm, of course. You know, if I'm looking for something, I just mm. look it up on the internet. I think you've got to be really careful, though, with that sort of process, that you don't miss out on finding things out from people who actually experience something. Mm. And there are lots of ways of doing that. You can look up ideas of how to get to somebody who might have had that experience. You know, for example, I did a play once where I was basically a Holocaust survivor. Now, again, not something I can relate to in any way, shape or form. But in in the days that I did it, there were, the only one thing I could do really was to go to the Holocaust Museum and mm. ask them if I could engage with someone, talk to someone. And that's what I ended up being able to do. And it was incredible to have that sort of access to that. And now I think that that process might be skipped because you can just find so much information. That's the thing I would say is really important is to go to the real. It's like, it's like you know, shopping online. Mm. Don't just shop online all the time. Go to the supermarket. You get to meet people. <laughs> you get to talk to the, you know, to the wonderful people who are squeezing the fruit. Yes. The nonnas who were who were looking standing there and because you know I used to shop in Leichhardt a lot and there was all of this information that came. I used to say to them, "What are you going to do with that?" Tell me. <laughs> How are you going to find that out if you just shop online? True, true. We didn't survive a lockdown for nothing. <laughs> that, that's right. Well, our next uh, singer is a particularly famous lady, Ella Fitzgerald, with a particularly famous song, Mac the Knife, in a particularly famous performance made from her Live in Berlin yes. album. Tell me why you've chosen this. Oh, look, I've loved this forever. And I remember my girlfriend and I discovering this together in a way. Again, we had it on an album. And... I think in the end we knew all the words. We could sing it not as well as Ella, of course. The idea too, we were young. I was at the time that um, I didn't discover Ella then, but she's been in my life forever. But basically this song, we were performers, you know, we were at, at acting school and this was just something that blew our minds, really, that she was able to do this on a stage in front of all of those people and just literally... Forget the words and then make it up and make it up so brilliantly. Oh, 
Simone, Ella Fitzgerald with Mac the Knife. That's the live 1960 Berlin recording, which, well, I think has become famous because of that uh, trying and not remembering the words, the choice of my guest in conversation today, actor Kate Raison. Kate, you must have tried on stage. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Tell me about that and, and getting back on, getting everyone back on track. Well, it's it's happened a couple of times, but basically... It happens more as you get older (laughs) and the fear of it is worse than the actual act of it happening. So when it does happen, I take control because that's all you can do. Um, Hopefully you're working with another actor who, if possible, can help you out. And whenever it's happened to me, I've always been in a situation where I have had another actor with me Mm. and I've done the same thing for other actors where it's happened. Mm. You've just got to be listening. You've got to be on it all the time (laughs) because if that happens, you've got to be there to help. And Mm. so when it happens, it just feels like the longest period of time, if it's happening, that you've got to find it. So you've got to find that word. Yeah. just got to find the next word to get you into the next part. Even if you can't remember a whole section, you can get back. I think one of the worst ones was, and it wasn't so much drying, but it was trying to give a, I was trying to give a lecture of a painting. I was playing um, Heidi in the Heidi Chronicles and I was trying to give this lecture and the painting was supposed to come up behind me on the screen and they flipped the projector around during the change of the show or when they were setting it up and the picture was being projected onto another actor who was in the dark sitting on the stage waiting to do the next scene. Oh. It was being projected onto their back. So nobody in the audience could see the Caravaggio painting right. that I was trying to talk about. And I had to do a direct lecture was that, as I was standing up at a, a lectern doing yeah. a lecture. And so I had to make the whole thing up. And it was about a page and a half Wow. of telling people if they could possibly, if they could see the painting that my technical advisor hadn't put up for me that I was very angry about. And, of course, it was just, I just had to change the whole thing to oh, make so, it so work. So you still, you, you went with the fact that people couldn't see the painting rather but than... But I couldn't the, use the words necessarily because we, all the words are about if you look at this line and this line and if you see these shadings right, here, okay. I had to make it up. It wasn't a happy moment. And it's fine, I was doing it. And the same thing when you dry, you do it, and then you can't, and you and then you behave like somebody else made a mistake. <laughs> it wasn't your fault. And what? then you come off stage and go, "Oh my god!" Oh! <laughs> you turn to jelly, scream into a pillow. I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I wish that hadn't happened. So, have you had any peculiar audience encounters? You know, whether that's a, a theatre foyer or a supermarket with the, with one of those nonnas squeezing the tomato. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, lo- yes, lots of times. I mean, it's it's lovely actually and it's lovely when people um, come and chat to you or run after you. I did have a very funny one with a girlfriend of mine. I was in London and it was b- back in the 90s but you forget that some of the Australian shows were quite big in London at the time. You know, Neighbours was. Still are. Home and, yeah, <laughs> still are. Home and away and even a country practice was on, you know, in the afternoons. So I think we were in Portobello Road and we were just walking down to go to the markets and this woman ran and I I was very used to it in Australia at the time but not in the UK and I, I was just walking down the road and this woman came absolutely screaming like something was chasing her with her hands in the air and 
literally screaming my character's name. And then finally when she got to me, she just threw her arms around me and it was like, I just went, I cannot believe that this has happened to me. Here I am in, you know, I was probably still jet lagged. But I just <laughs> thought, wow, yeah. Well, that's nice that you meant so much to I her. I meant so much yeah. to her. She frightened me. I was about to say, <laughs> I would have been absolutely terrified. <laughs> and it, I guess it's those moments when you're not quite used to it or when audience members in smaller theatres think that it's okay to have a, you know, they speak, they'll tell you. What, they speak to you. They might speak to you or they might speak about you. Oh. She's taller than I thought she was. <laughs> I thought people were always shorter than you thought they That's were in real I life. <laughs> She's taller than I thought she was. <laughs> well, Kate Rezon, has been absolutely marvellous having you here today. But before I let you go, you do have one more piece of music to introduce, which will go out with Tommy Emmanuel. Yes. I'm a bit of a fangirl with Tommy Emmanuel. And used to see him a lot play at the basement and he used to play with a group of people and it would just be whoever was sitting around at the time. So it was always called Tommy Emmanuel and Friends. I love Daybreak and I was thrilled to hear that he recently got a Grammy and he's still performing, still recording, um, just doing what he loves and I think he's just a superb guitar player. Kate Rezon, thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. Thank you, Simon. Actor Kate Rezon. She's appearing in David Williamson's new play, The Great Divide, at the Ensemble Theatre from the 8th of March to the 27th of April. Visit ensemble.com.au for more information and for bookings. That's the program for today. Catch up on past episodes at 2mbsfindmusicsydney.com slash inconversation or via the 2MBS app, downloadable from the Apple Store and Google Play. You can also follow the show in your podcast app of choice. Just search for 2MBS In Conversation. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network.